the constant pursuit of ascension, the constant pursuit of everything is going to be okay, the constant pursuit of wanting to be right, wanting to be acknowledged, wanting to be comforted, wanting everything to be great and perfect. Is that actually the human experience? Are those expectations actually helpful towards our experience? You tell me. Because I don't think they are. I think the fullness of the human experience is lived when we live in the totality of all of our emotions. Emotions come and go. Emotions are reflections of the present moment. If we want to live full, then we oftentimes will have to acknowledge some emotions, right? But then what we do is a lot of us be, will run from situations that cause certain emotions that we don't want to feel. Or we'll run from conversations that may potentially bring up the emotions that we don't want to feel because we would prefer the ascension, which is comfort or love or uh, happiness or comfortableness. And some of these conversations might be uncomfortable, like death. Are you comfortable talking about death? Or is that a conversation that makes you uncomfortable? If so, why? This isn't about judgment. This isn't about shame. This isn't about telling you that you are not enough. This is about humanity. And, the, and when I use that phrase, what I'm saying is the essence of your human experience, living your human life. If you want to free your energy, you have to free all of the conversations. And the conversation about death has to be freed. So I'll ask you, are you comfortable talking about death? And do you have an assumption that talking about death has to be sad? It has to be bad. It has to be full of sorrow. It has to be full of darkness. It has to be full of emotions that potentially could be quote unquote uncomfortable for us, the ones that we often want to run from and hide from. What if talking about death was a beautiful invitation? What if a conversation about death was the invitation that you needed to live fully? What if that's what you've been waiting for? You know, I love, there's this movie uh, that my guest, Mr. Stephen Jenkinson is in called Grief Walker. And he has this, there's a scene in the movie where he's uh, working with a, a client of his. So he worked in uh, palliative care, helping people and assisting people who had, you know, chronic illness and terminal illness who were dying. He's been at the bedside of over 1,500 people. Uh, as they pass away. And his his role has been to assist them in the language that they're using around death and to assist them in the experience. And I'm paraphrasing him, but in the movie he says, you don't love anybody until you love their end. Hmm. This, this line is going to stay with me forever. He says, you don't love anybody until you love their end. You love the marriage, right? Well, the marriage includes an end. And that's what you have to also love. You have to love the end. No, 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 not acceptance. Acceptance is too neutral. You have to love it. You have to say yes to it. I love that invitation because it makes me think on not only the people that I've buried and people that have passed away, but I also think about relationships that ended, whether they're dating relationships or friendships. And those have an end. I'm wondering if you were able to love the end of your relationships, would you then be able to move on? Quote unquote, move on from the relationship. I'm not saying that moving on is the goal or is the target, but I'm just, I'm just thinking here. If, if I want to move on from the relationship with my college ex-girlfriend uh, because it's no longer a present relationship and I want to move to my present relationship and I want to be fully present, I want to be fully a full participant, I want to give as much love as possible. 
then doesn't that mean that I have an obligation to at least three different people here? Doesn't that mean that I have an obligation to my college girlfriend? And maybe not to to go talk to her, but to to, to just say, hey, you know, this this is a conversation I could have with myself where I say, hey, I loved everything about our relationship. There's some stuff I didn't like, but I also love that we ended. Hmm. Sounds like closure. But if we, if I hate that we end it and I hate the way how we end it, then a lot of my thoughts will be centered around that. Where's the love? Where's the, where's the ability to grieve there? Where's the ability to honor the end? Then it sounds like I have another obligation to, to myself to release myself from my past, release myself from my past stories because I never gave myself an end to those relationships with, I'm just, I'm making up a scenario here. I'm not necessarily saying this is me. Follow me. Right. So if I have this residue left over from a relationship and then I never gave myself the, the permission to accept the death, to love the death of that relationship, that's why I don't have closure. So now I have to give myself some type of acceptance there and give myself that love. And then now we're talking about trying to be in a present relationship with someone. Well, now that I've honored and grieved and accepted and loved the end of the last relationship, now I can be totally present. But even then, and obviously we don't we don't necessarily know, but we it's safe to assume that even if you enter the greatest relationship of your life, that one is still going to end, and you still will have to find a way to love that. This realization for me has actually changed all of all of my present relationships because it's an invitation to. The people who are going to pass away who are in my life, it gives me an invitation to choose how I'm going to honor them and what could be called, you know, their last suppers, their last days, or uh, when they die. I'm so grateful for the talk today with Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. as a musician as well, he he found a very poetic way to combine the talks on grief uh, and death, and he brought them into poetry and into music. Such beautiful music. So what I'm going to do for you right now is I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to play a little bit of the song, and then it's going to take you right into my chat with Stephen. So if you go to orphanwisdom.com, you'll be able to find everything uh, about Stephen there, uh, about, about his school, about his work, uh, other interviews he's been in, as well as the tour. He's going to hopefully get back on tour here and uh, do different, they're called Nights of Grief and Mystery, which is, if you're anything like me, you're, you love poetry and you love those deep, you know, that deep soulful energy. That's what he's bringing. So without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of the Free Your Energy podcast with Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Free Your Energy. I went to Harvard Divinity School in the late 1970s. I thought I'd get into the clergy business. The clergy, they thought otherwise. They were right. Things have worked out on all sides of that ill-conceived notion, though. Still, God's mysteries are as mysterious when they work out as when they don't. So I was counseled out of the divinity part of things. I had no plan B at all. I was eight weeks into my career, and I was missing the soul of it all. my divinity plans and charts, I was walking across Harvard Yard in a skiff of December snow. It was dusk, and everything was violet shadow and murmuring. The pigeons are a fact of life there. They'll let you get pretty close, and then they'll explode in feathers and bawling to land ten feet away to start the whole thing again. And that happened 
with every bird but one, aloft, that one, who remained in the snow. The bird tried again to rise and didn't, nothing but flapping, bird adrenaline. The bird let me get too close, I thought. So I knelt beside, and I reached over, and I folded the wings to the body so as not to hurt and I made to turn the bird over to look for something wrong. In that rotating motion, the bird died. I want to start off by telling you that I think about death every single day. Mm -hmm. It probably returns the favor. When I thought of speaking to you, (laughs) when I imagined a conversation with you, you came to me through my men's group with uh, Connor Beaton, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. They brought your work to the group. And... They're so passionate. Mm -hmm. Hey, you got to check this guy out. You got to listen to this. Mm -hmm. You know how it is when we find a new, a new artist, a new song, a new, a new play, when we find new poetry that resonates with our soul. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll check it out. See what it's about. Sure. And what I felt is I felt a connection to the work in that I feel it's very similar to my work, which I feel is very similar I feel like my work is an extension of my soul in that what I find myself spending my days doing is trying to invite people into a more intimate connection with their own experience. And I find that the conversation of death does that. (laughs) It definitely, it definitely does that. Yeah. So I'm curious for you with all of the work you've done with 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 your poetry with your music with working in the hospitals and in the various jobs that I don't even know about what do you feel like is one of your callings or 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 purposes or or pushes for doing the work that you do uh first of all thank you for the invitation it's good to sit down and talk with you uh well, you know, this is a self-appointed gig and nobody waiting on me to come through, you know, with the goods. So, you know, being self-initiated, I have a lunatic for a boss, you could say. that The guy rides me particularly hard, right? So there's a few things I could, you know, very specifically I could mention. One of them is... Well, I was in on a lot of human dying, and all of those people are dead now. And they included very young kids, babies, you know, not just old people. And I'm not saying that in any way I feel indebted to those people or that I somehow transgressed upon a sacred time, you know, any of that kind of malarkey. No, the truth was. We were two human beings that were uh, dumbfounded by the ordinariness that had come to claim one of us. And uh, my gig was to not blink. And by virtue of keeping my eyes open, my responsibility to them was twofold. One, to be a faithful witness to what came to collect them and what failed them. And two, my job was to find a language, create, craft a language where the realities of their dying were manifest and available and lucid and palpable and adamant and clear and clarifying and hurtful. And, you know, the whole gamut. And I know that I kept my promise on the second one. 
it's it's led me to uh, a kind of splendid social isolation that will never end uh, because my my manner of addressing these things is you know not most people's cup of tea and not too user friendly in the normal sense of the term so i know that you know the language that i've found to do justice to dying is a tremendously challenging and demanding encounter i, mean, I know that it's been a long time since i encountered it for the first time of course but uh I- i'm well aware that it's not everybody's um way of relaxing or or thinking or considering but i can't make any apology for asking grown-ups to be grown-ups in a time that pleads for them to do just that that's it i'm i'll just i'll come clean on the matter and and fully admit that i perhaps don't have the right to ask this of people but i do have the obligation to ask it and so i do and rather than seeking their permission in a graceful moment i might seek their forgiveness for having done so you did a a 2 hour talk with a gentleman that i found to offer me nourishment and so i took that talk and i sent it to a couple of guys that i i share life with you know friends that we call mm-hmm. Couple of the guys said, "Okay, I'll check it out. This sounds interesting." Um, two of the guys had feedback and criticism, and then there was one guy specifically that I'm curious to ask you about. He said he looked at the title and he said, "I'm not talking about this. I was just with my 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 grandmother, and I was just with my aunt, and I was just with my cousin, and all they did was talk about death. I don't want to talk about this. Let's talk about something else." So I pushed that guy. I said, why don't you want to talk about this? What's wrong with this conversation? Mm. Well, it's sad. It's depressing. Mm. It's dark. It's deep. I said, well, what's wrong with that? He says, I'm not talking about that. Let's talk about (laughs) something else. And then we moved. Then the conversation ended up on basketball. Ah, Safe ground. (laughs) Literally basketball. (laughs) Right. No depression there. Safe. Exactly. and. (laughs) No depression in basketball, no sorrow, no sadness. No. And I feel that that's reflective of the society that we're in, especially in my peer group. I'm in my mid-30s. I feel like in my peer group right now, I feel like we're addicted to ascension. We're addicted to what feels good, to what tastes good, what smells good, what's positive, what's happy, what's motivating me, what's, what's, you know. But then that descension into the soul, into the pain, into the sorrow, into the grief, into the trouble, into the, the waters is like, we don't want to go there. Why do you, why do you think that is? Uh, well, there's, there are stylistic answers to your question. It's just, uh, you know, no, nobody gets out of bed in the morning to feel more than they felt when they went to sleep. I mean, as ragged as that might sound, that's what I've seen over and over again. People come to the end of their day or their energy or their give a shit. They're not looking for more to be asked of them. And it's not like both of us don't understand that. We do understand that. But here's the thing. I mean, you can see me, right? So I give you the front view. I give you the side view. Do I look depressed to you? Do I look demented and downtrodden and all that other stuff that your friend was so concerned would come to get him? Uh Uh-uh. So I'm proof positive of the fact that you properly should come to the subject of, of limits and frailties and endings, and you have no obligation to be dragged out by that that's not what it does that's not what it's for is if i mean otherwise you condemn yourself to a saccharine diet right it's not even sweet it's 
it's uh, it's fake sweet. I mean, what could be more empty than fake sweetness? <laughs> so, so the the truth of the matter is, of course, that uh, it's not that it's un- not understandable. But you think about the extremes of hot and cold for a second. One of the things that happen, we have minus 35 in the wintertime here, and we have plus 35 Celsius I'm talking about in the summertime. So my area of the world has got a lot of extremes, right? And you know that if your fingers are really cold, your ability to distinguish the coldness in them from what heat what burning feels like starts to diminish. What's the point? The point is in any human extreme, the ends tend to bend towards the middle, meaning they tend to resemble each other. And it's in the, it's in the middle zone that we have some sense of gradation, right? So, of course, they're going to say death bad. And what, sex good? What, what's What's your, what's your opposite to that? You know, uh, death bad, basketball good. Um, when the good guys are finally separated from the bad guys and, and we're spared sorrow and things like that. I could tell you this, uh, working in the death trade for the years that I did and all of the public work that I've done since then, I know that the culture that I'm a product of is a death phobic culture. There's no two ways about it. And it's a grief illiterate culture on top of it. And one of the great afflictions that surround me every day is the insistence on the idea that the solution to heartbrokenness is to feel less and therefore feel better. To narrow your broadcast bandwidth, emotionally speaking and spiritually speaking. And to keep it simple, right? So can you imagine how, what became of us when we came to the solution of brokenheartedness to seek out less heart and therefore less brokenness? Last time I checked, brokenheartedness is one of the signs of life. It's not anti-life. It's not the opposite of life. It's the ally of life. Right, And there's something about heartbroken that gives you a taste for real <clears throat> joy, a kind of radicalized joy. That's where your appreciation of that frequency comes from. It comes from not only how, how t- you know, rare it can be, but you, you have appreciation for what sorrow asks of you. And when, for the moment, it stopped asking things of you, and you discover one day that you're reasonably content, you've, you discover, lo and behold, what's the, what's the source of your gratitude for being alive? It's realizing that it's not going to last. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from everything working out. I mean, let's, let's be frank with each other for a second. I had maintained a private counseling practice for years. And I can tell you what never happened. Nobody ever walked into the office and said, right, here's why I called you. Everything's working out. (laughs) My wife still loves me. The kids still talk to me. The job's going okay. I thought it's a good time to wonder about life. Never happened. Never going to happen. Okay. And here's the other thing. It never happened where somebody came in and said, well, everything is gone south. Everything's turned to shit. I thought I'd wonder about my life. So it kind of begs the question, what gets you into the wonderful mode? What fills you with wonder such that you become mystified by the ordinariness of your days? It's the ordinariness itself that's mystifying. And that's where you go to pray if you've got any sense at all. Not in these peak experience, climbing the mountain bullshit. It's the everyday, the ordinary thing. That's what's waiting for you. That's the table that's set for you. And, you know, you don't need to go to a retreat center to have an ordinary life. You just need a sense that it's not going to last and that you're lucky 
that you lasted long enough to realize that it's not going to last. And you put your paddle in the water and you go. I noticed you mentioned grief, illiterate culture. Yeah. Um, To indicate that we have what, either no relationship with grief or a weak relationship or one where we, we don't understand it. Can you speak to me on that more sure. and, and bring us into, I, I don't necessarily want to say how, but just the images of what it looks like to learn to read the language of grief a little bit better. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, the, I suggested a, a sort of twin relationship. There's, I said death phobic, but I didn't say grief phobic. I said death phobic and grief illiterate. And those are the kind of unidentical twins that so many of us in Anglo North America are living our lives uh, between those two places. So, death phobic, what does that mean? It means scared, stupid of your life ending. But what does grief illiterate mean? It had nothing to do with fear. Grief illiteracy, I coined the phrase to suggest. That my understanding of grief means that it has to be learned. And therefore, it's possible not to learn it. It's possible to be deprived of any real education about it or any practitioners in your young life. You know, if you never saw it, it could undo you the first time you see it, if the first time is in your 20s. I mean, you see somebody, you know, going off the deep end, whatever it is. you know, the ordinary sorrows, and uh, you've been spared that. You know, you've been disabled by being spared. So grief is, okay, so it needs to be learned. And that means you have to be exposed to it. That means you can't come up with it on your own any more than you come up with a language on your own if you don't hear anybody speaking it, right? So so grief, what, what what's its principle dynamic or or uh, what's its rhythm to my mind uh, grief is first and foremost an understanding it's an understanding of life that runs something like this so i'm listening to this guy who's written a bestseller huge bestseller how can you tell it's a bestseller because it's always in the airports <laughs> in the old days when i used to be in a lot of airports in those bookstores, this dude's book was in every bookstore. That's how you know. He's in heavy rotation, right? So uh, it's called A Brief History of Humankind or something like that. And then he wrote a follow-up, and I was listening to him being interviewed on his follow-up book, which is about the near future, his take on what's coming soon. And in this thing, he said, I don't know if you know this, he said, but uh, they're working on a serum. and." Uh, when they perfect it, uh, they're going to try it out on us, and uh, we're not going to have to die by taking it. <clears throat> Pay attention to his language. What did he say? We won't have to die, he said. So you see the orientation to death? It's something that's done to you. It's not something you do. Right? It's, you're a victim of your own death by this understanding, and you're, uh, you're undone by it instead of you doing it. You're undone by it instead. So if I were saying the same thing this guy said, I would have said, so you take this pill or whatever it is, you won't be able to die. And that puts the emphasis in the right place. You won't be able to die. And and then the interviewer said to him, uh, what do you think, what would that do to us to not be able to die? And the the writer said, well, we're going to have to change what we call those people, because we won't be able to call them human anymore. And dude said, what would you, what would you call them? And, and the other guy said, divine. Divine. If you can't die, this is what makes you divine. And sort of by definition, if you can die, what does that make you? Answer is, human. In other words, It's all our frailties. It's all our limits. It's all our undoings. And finally, it's our endings. That's what 
grants us our ability to be human. That's what we're supposed to take care of. That's what we're supposed to learn. That's the human chops that you have to cultivate over time. It's not easy to do. It's counterintuitive. And I can see the expression on your face as you're listening to this, you know, trying to cash it out, turn it into something. What, what would it look like if you did it every day? Let me anticipate that that's what you're wondering about. If you were, if you were that kind of guy, what, what would your normal life look like? Or would you have one? And the answer is, well, I can take a page from my own routine and say, I lost the ability to have idle conversation. I, <laughs> if I could put it this way, I lost the ability to talk shit with strangers. I just can't really do, I can't invest myself in it. Why not? It's not because I'm a better person. It's because I don't have the time. What do you mean you don't have the time? I mean, I don't know how many hours there are, but I know I got a fixed number. And on my better days, I'm trying to remember that and act accordingly. Mm. It doesn't make me desperate, but it does, does give me a sense of urgency uh, about my time here and whatever projects I do. And even unto this interview now, you know, I'm working here. <laughs> I'm working at this. You know, I'm, I'm trying to say something that I've never said before, though I've spoken about these things literally thousands and thousands of times. See, so don't you get tired of it? No, I don't. How can you not get tired of repeating yourself? Easy. I don't repeat myself. Okay, you and I have never spoken before. The least I owe you is an effort to find the best of me that could be available today. Where does that instinct come from? Just because I'm such a great guy? I told you, I'm not such a great guy. It comes from the fact that I've glimpsed my own death a lot. And I practiced at the deathbed of other people to try to get it straight. See? And so at this point, I'm 66. But uh, as my old teacher said, I love this about this guy. He said about himself, he said, I don't look like much, but I am hard to kill. That's cool. And I'm working on that. I don't know about the not looking like much. I think I'm looking okay, you know, considering. But, uh, but I am hard to kill. I'm hard to throw off the scent, you know. Um, you look great. I, I love your you. style. Thank you, man. So I'm kind of, I'm serious, like a heart attack is serious. And I don't blink. And I don't, uh, I don't take no too easily. But I'm enormously considerate of my fellows, my fellow humans. In other words, I'm not a hard ass. And that's that whole wrap of the last four or five minutes. That's one of the things I mean when I say grief. It's the capacity to, 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 to run through your, not run, I mean to move through your days as if these things are so. So how do you choose, you know, when you wake up and there's, there's just so much available to us? There's, there's meditation, there's praying. Yeah. There's community, solitude, nature, uh, writing poetry, writing music. There, there's, and then, you know, you, you spoke on idle conversations. How do you choose how you use your time? You know, how did you choose to do this podcast? Like you said, we, we hadn't spoke, we hadn't had a prior relationship. How do you choose what business ventures you're, you're, where you're putting your time and, you know, how are you choosing your time? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, First thing I'd acknowledge is I'm not sure all the choices are mine. Some of them get made for me. <clears throat> I don't mean by the, only the people around me. I mean the circumstances will narrow things down, right, to a few likely candidates. Uh, there's a story I heard a long time ago. It seems to be about praying, but you, you decide. It goes something like this. So you open your eyes in the morning, right? And this is in the, those moments between. You know you're not asleep, but you're not quite awake yet. That kind of magic moment. And that's when you, you're well advised to say something out loud that goes like this. To whomever or to whatever you might direct your praying. But let's, let me just use the word God for short. Shorthand. You say, God, so far, I've been a good person. 
I've slandered nobody. I've not taken anybody's name in vain. I have not taken advantage of anyone. But I'm about to get out of bed. And I'm going to need all the help I can get to see if I can break even by day's end. You know, that, that's one way to tune yourself up, to understand that, you know, you start at, at zero, but it's not easy to break even on a day in terms of um, carrying the freight. I guess, I guess in a phrase, the way I decide is this. You know, I, I saw a lot of people die, and that can do something to you. It's not automatic that it does, but it can. And one of the things it can do is narrow down the idea of what's worth it or what counts or what matters or what's real. And there's a lot of stuff that falls off the table when you see that kind of thing. And you can grow a kind of almost intolerance uh, when you're around people who have simply not glimpsed this and are engaged in various kinds of foolishness, if I could just put it gently, or uh, self-importance and so on. You know, the, the things that are available to us, um, I'm not sure that there's a world of difference between them all. There, many of them are a kind of distractions. And the time that we're in, and I'm not just talking about the plague here, but the time we're in, that we're in before the plague came on, and we'll be there after all of the vaccines and the whole thing. That time asked a tremendous amount of us, given how truant we had been and how much the world suffered on our watch. Now we have to translate that kind of consciousness into a condition of citizenship rather than consciousness. Consciousness, to my mind at least, implies this idea that you have to engage in all this kind of consciousness-raising uh, technologies in order to, uh, to occupy that, that uh, elevated status. And I like the word citizenship because there's no time in which you're not a citizen. You're a citizen when you go to the bank and when you don't, when you pick up the phone and when you decide not to. You're a citizen before you go to sleep and after. Okay. And rather than thinking of our citizenship in, in an allegedly free country, a more or less free country, rather than thinking it in terms of what our rights are, it's about time we started thinking about what our obligations are. Because citizenship is nine-tenths obligation, occasionally interrupted by an outbreak of upside, especially in a time like this, especially. So I'm trying to translate all the things that I'm saying to you into acts of radicalized citizenship. And I suppose that's how I choose. I ask myself, was it a citizen of a certain age who's deeply committed to his time, even though his time is a sorry, sorry thing? Still what's asked of him, and I, my responsibility is to translate the answer to that question many times in a given day, including if I have an opportunity to talk to some a younger man, in this case, who I don't know, lo and behold, we don't have to know each other to hit the ground running. We don't have to be hopeful. We don't have to see things the same way, occupy the same place in life or the world or, or be citizens of the same country or any of that stuff. What we need to have is a sense of, let's say, goodwill. And that, it, that it's worth it. And that we're going to take one of the hours that is allotted to us in this life and conduct ourselves, not only respectful of each other, but especially respectful of the possibility that we will be overheard doing this. And they, we, we, more than likely, we will intrude into somebody's life. Somebody won't know that this exists. And by some kind of technology, it, it intrudes into their lives. And I think our job is to, is to conduct ourselves respectful of the possible audience. It's not the same thing as not asking anything of that audience, though. One of the ways you respect people, you treat them like grown-ups. And one of the characteristics of grown-ups is you can handle more than you think you can.
And you got to start moving in the direction of what you're capable of instead of what you're comfortable with. A friend reached out to me a few days ago to let me know that she was having the worst week of her life. Her mother passed away uh, unexpectedly. My response was, let me know how I can support you. What is the most appropriate way, uh, the, the safest way to support someone when the, another person in, in their life passes and you don't have the strong connection to that person who passed? You know, how do we support people that are going, going through that? How do we help them grieve? How do we become containers for their grieving? Mm-hmm. What's our obligation even? You know, a lot of the, the, the language is so-and-so passed. Oh, I'm sorry. And I've always wondered, well, why are you sorry? Why, why, why are we sorry that someone passed? Why are you sorry that my father passed away? My mother is uh, going to pass away. Why are you sorry when that happens? I've never quite understood that language. I'm wondering what, what type of language you, you use or have encountered with those situations. Well... This is going to, my first part of my answer is going to sound a little, uh, let's say, hard to manage, hard to imagine. And it's this. You can either talk about somebody dying, or you can talk as if someone has died. In the first case, you're making their death the object of your back and forth. You're talking through that. But if you go the second route, you're not limited to what you can talk about. And everything you can come up with makes room for the fact that so-and-so's mother died. It's there in the mix. You don't have to talk about mom dying all the time for mom's death to be in the house. Right? There's the first thing. Second thing is. yeah, the, the, the language of I'm sorry, I mean, generally we say I'm sorry when we've transgressed somebody and we've done something we shouldn't have done or that we regret. So from that point of view, this is a ridiculous word to use because it doesn't apply. But, you know, the root word of sorry is the same root as sorrow. And what we should probably do is change the language slightly not use the word sorry anymore, but you could say something like this, though I didn't know her, it doesn't, it's not necessary for me to sorrow after your days right now. See? You're not saying you feel the same. You're not saying you feel their pain or it's not necessary to feel someone else's pain. You got your hands full with your own. Okay? But there is something in your ability to be, let's say, vulnerable to the sorrow of others, that it detonates sorrowful memory for you. And this begins your participation together in something. What you're not there to do, if I may go out on a limb and give some advice here, what you're not there to do is steal someone's sorrow from them in the name of comforting them. Right? There are circumstances in this life that will tolerate no comforting. Get it straight, okay? There are times in life where comfort is an insult or an obscenity. That's just straight up true. So you gotta, you, you gotta fess up to, to the, you know, the hard edge of life sometimes and not go through the great grief bypass of imagining that by saying the right thing, it's no longer as truly devastating as it was before you said it. Finally, I would say, you know, this comforting is a bit of a dead-end street. Uh, let me tell you a story that might give you a feel for what I mean by this. So a woman was in touch with me. She wrote me a, a brief email maybe two, three years ago. And she said, I've read Die Wise and everything else, and, and uh, it's great. Now, here's the thing. Uh, my father's dying. We've been reasonably close. You know, we had our problems, but now, you know, I'm the only child and my mom's dead. So it falls to me to take care of him. 
And so I want to give him a die-wise death. That's what she actually called it. But here's the thing. He won't talk to me about his dying. He won't say a word about it. He refuses. So my question to you is, how can I respect my father's wishes and give him the die-wise death that you advocate? My answer to her, you can't. What? You can't. Why not? Because this notion that you're supposed to respect your father's wishes takes everything off the table except what he wants you to do. That's all that's left to you. And he forbids you to talk about his diet. Wait a second. This guy brought you into this world. And his last act of fathering is to go silent on his departure. And he takes that away, not just from himself, but from you. And then he pretends that this is his right as a dying person. And that, and that it's, a, it's a proper act of fathering to withhold this from you. And, you know, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a little beside myself just at the thought of it. And I'm saying this as a father who has kids in their 30s now. So you don't have the right to clam up when you're dying and you brought kids into this world. Do you know why? Because when it's their turn to die and you're not there and you did it your way, just make sure you understand that you condemn them to the same wicked silence that you demonstrated. Okay? Because that's the only example they'll have to draw upon when it's their turn. Is that what you mean? Is that what respect is supposed to be? So my, my, I'm adamantly saying this is not an act of father love to refuse to talk about it with your adult daughter. So, you know, moral of the story, if you will, is, is uh, comforting somebody doesn't work out too well as a goal. It's like trying to be happy. You know, comforting someone is a secondary consequence of doing something else. The problem with comfort is, is that the other person has to feel comforted by you in order for the whole thing to work and to register. Your comforting has to be recognizable to that other person as comfort, and they have to respond accordingly and assure you that they find what you're saying comforting. You know what that means? Most of the shit that you need to say and be with them, you can't be. Because their need to be comforted forbids you to do so. In other words, there's something about comfort that's, that's intolerant, emotionally and psychically and sort of spiritually intolerant. And it won't, it doesn't carry the heavy freight of life. Oh, there's moments. Sure, there's moments. But we don't need nearly as much comfort as we think we do. What we need more than anything else is to get faithful witness from our companions. So that the deep running realities of life are not lost to us, even when we try to turn away from them. You put me on a train of thought where I'm actually thinking, and this is not me looking for a silver lining, but it's just more looking at the full image. There's, there's, there's comfort in that discomfort, actually. The more that you adjust and adapt and accept the discomfort of, the pain or the confusion or the sorrow or the anger or whatever it is, there can be comfort there because then you're actually allowing yourself to authentically process your human experience. And I think that the, we're, we're seeking the comfort because we want to skip those steps. But if you go through those steps, there's actually comfort on the other end because you actually so, show how strong you are or how resilient you are, or even none of that. Just You just show how human you are. And just having that ordinary human experience. I just feel like that is so beautiful. Like that should be the comfort we seek in saying, hey, I'm human. I'm going I'm going to allow myself to go through this instead of, oh, let me skip this because this is painful. Like I remember when my dad passed away, I'm at the funeral. It's over. One and my cousin, he's like, okay, let's go get drinks. Let's go get drunk. And I'm like, well, I don't really drink like that. Why would I go get drunk? Oh, because you know you're crying and you're sad. Let's just forget about all that. Let's just yeah. go get drunk. Yeah. I said, well, I don't want to forget about it. I want to experience these feelings that I'm feeling. Mm. Like I want to experience this grieving process, especially because me and my dad, we had a very, um, uh, 
a very interesting relationship where there was definitely a lot of trauma and abuse. So for me, his funeral wasn't just him passing. It was also me allowing that story of um, I was abused or, you know, whatever that's, you know, how we tell ourselves these stories. I wanted to allow that story to go with him as well, or at least begin to metabolize. Mm -hmm. So my cousin was like, oh yeah, you know, this is, let's go get drunk. Let's get some drinks. Mm -hmm. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want that comfort and that alcohol. It's not going to heal me. It's going to hurt me. True. I'm curious to know, since we mentioned alcohol, I'm curious to know what your relationship has been with uh, marijuana, um, alcohol, drugs, um, psychedelics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever quite been asked that before, but the answer is easy. Yeah, to come I'm, up. I'm curious to know. <laughs> yeah, the answer is easy to come up with because uh, there's not much to talk about. The truth of the matter is, I tried smoking one time when I was about 15, and my lungs virtually came out of my mouth. I mean, it was just, it was the grimmest encounter. And I just said, F this. I mean, I will <laughs> never do that to myself again, you know. And uh, as far as the, the altered state stuff, you know, trans, you know, beam me up Scotty material, I'm, I find my ordinary life <laughs> is uh, marvel enough. I'm not saying I got an easy gig, or I'm not saying, you know, that I've, I skip over all the, all the boring shit that other people have to live or anything. That's not true. I, I mean, you know, I'm trying to make it work, right? And, and people say you got a lot of books, you got a band, da 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 da, tour all over the world. Uh, you got it made, really? You think so? Yeah. What do you want to trade me for? You, do you want just the part that you're admiring or do you want the whole package? Do you want the whole package? You'd never make the trade. Okay. As right. they say in the business, they don't pay you to sing or perform. They pay you to travel from one place to another and go through that. Okay. And there's nothing romantic about it. So, so my point is simply to say, um, I find an ordinary state of bewilderment or marvel to be as psychedelic as my life could possibly require. And I really don't care what that sounds like to anybody who finds me unadventurous. <laughs> if I'm unadventurous when it comes to, uh, you know, chemically, chemically altering my take on life, so be it. My lack of adventure has turned into a, a decent gig that people occasionally tell me they find useful, the things I come up with. And I, I don't think I have a, I'd have the right to disappear into my own little take on things. I think I have the obligations of a citizen, and they don't include retreating. There it is. Thank you. The next time we talk, I really would like, I'm, I'm thinking of it. I'm present still, but I'm, I'm thinking of the conversation of elderhood, eldership. Yeah. And I was talking with a gentleman yesterday. He's, so I'm 35 years old. The gentleman I was speaking with was 24. And he was talking about just the lack that we have, um, the lack of role models, if you will, especially for men. Yeah. And he asked me why, like, why? He's like, why do you, th why do you think that is? I said, well, I said, you know, obviously my, my lens is coming from North America, from what I see here. I have not been all over the world. I've, I've been to Canada, been to Costa Rica, um, but I have not been to all the countries. So I, I can't give you a perspective of, of that. But what I see is a bunch of people who have neglected to ever come into any intimacy with themselves, ever not even paying attention to the food we eat. We don't pay attention to the vibrations of the words that we're using. We're, we're never really examining our language. We're not really into examining our behaviors. Hey, how is this impacting the people around me or, or my earth or my community? What I see is a lot of people chasing money. Nothing wrong with money, 
at all. But when that's the root of your desire and that's the root of your chase, you just have a bunch of holes in your life. You just have an empty soul. So how, how is someone with an empty soul who's chased nothing but money, neglected their health, neglected their family, like you say, abandoned your fatherly duties or brotherly duties or maybe motherly duties, how are you supposed to be an elder to me? And then you combine that with people in my age group, we are addicted to the ascension and to individualism. I'm self-made. I, I hear people say this all the time. Oh, I'm self-made. You're self-made? How? Explain that to me. So I just feel like there's these two pillars that are working together where the result is we don't have elders. Yeah. And then the elders we do have, we, we don't really respect. So as a, a potent elder, what do you feel like your obligation is? I think I would, I would change the question slightly and say, to whom do I owe my elderhood? Not what is the nature of my, my obligation, but to whom? And I'm saying that because I think that's, what, that's how things get operationalized. Um, I'm taking my hint from how do you become an ancestor? Mm. Well, you got to die. That's important. But it's not inevitable that every dead person is an ancestor. Far from it. Something has to happen amongst the living for a dead person to become an ancestor. Okay? It's the same thing with elderhood. Okay? Being a geezer, no matter what your birth certificate says, none of these things are membership cards in elderhood. Elderhood is a consequence of being employed by younger people in that regard. That's how it works. That's the mechanics. That's the, the spirit machinery of the thing. Used the expression self-made earlier. There's a word we have in English language for that. It's automaton. The word literally means, auto means self. And the root word of maton is mother. The, the literal meaning of the word is to be self-mothered, which of course is an obscenity and a crime against nature. You're not supposed to be self-mothered. You're supposed to be on the receiving end of somebody else's mothering. Okay? Get it straight, for God's sake. Anyhow, so, so an elder is, is a consequence of two things. The time that he or she was born to and the spirit work that his or her times ask of his generation on the one side. And on the other side, your function as an elderhood is detonated by the willingness, often involuntary willingness, grudging willingness, even unconsciousness, that young people bring to an encounter with that would-be elder. I can tell you that I've lived long enough now where a lot of young people come around. I had a school, you know, in the old days when we used to be able to congregate, and it may come again, I don't know. And a lot of young people would come, you know. By young, I mean under 30, 35, 30. And uh, you can, I can feel them watching, you know. And they're looking for something, and they're not exactly sure what it is. And they're not exactly sure they'd recognize it if they found it. But there's something going on. There's some kind of involuntary longing. I could put it this way. Most people that I meet that are around your age or younger are walking this world with a sense of having been so fundamentally betrayed by the fortune of the times, by the, the trouble in the sky and in the ecology, by, by my generation and so on, that they've virtually given up on the idea that anybody older than them is worth a damn, period. Okay? And yet, this is the involuntary part, there's something about that that they want to be wrong about. They want to be wrong about their certainty that nobody my age is worth the friggin' trouble. And if you're lucky, and if you're paying attention, and if you've done your work, when you get to be something like my age, and a young person comes with that, 
you know, terrible combination of absolute certainty about their grievances and a kind of secret desire to be wrong about what they're most sure of. Hopefully your entire life has readied you for that moment because there's a lot hanging in the balance, you know. You could be one more disappointment. You could be one more person who doesn't get it. Uh, let me tell you a little story that might do this well. I, I think we're coming close to the end of our time, but, but, but the clock will stop for a decent story. So here we go. So this is a true story. It really happened, just like I'm going to tell you. And uh, I was in the West Coast, and I was, I was, was one of the very first times I was ever asked to talk to a group of people about elderhood. So this might be eight or ten years ago. And it was at a yoga studio. So I walked in, and I thought to myself, man, I'm, you know, I haven't come out here that much, but obviously I'm, I'm big news out here because they've filled this room. Until I realized that, you know, on the back wall was nothing but mirrors. So instead of four or 500 people there, there's actually only about 70 people there. And I was just seeing reproductions of them in the mirrors in the back. So I kind of, I took my licks, you know, and I sat down and I was introduced. And I looked around the room as I was being introduced. And I could see that there wasn't a tremendous number of younger people there. And there were quite a few older people there, and I was wondering what they were doing there. I was wondering why they came. What did they expect? What did they, what did they seek? Were they seeking anything? Were they looking for absolution? Were they looking for forgiveness? Were they looking for a get-out-of-jail card? Were they looking for a new identity card? Were they looking for recognition from me that I would give them this sort of elder walking papers? Or, or what? So the first question that was asked to me was asked by the organizer, and this is what he said. He said, he was about, say, 30 years old at the time. He said, most of my friends are depressed. And there was a pause. And then he said, can you tell me why? Imagine that. Imagine being asked that. Now, the point of the story is not really how I answered the question. The point of the story is something happened in the room that shouldn't have, and something should have happened in the room and didn't. This is how it went. So you know that guy is standing there at 30 years old, having pulled this gig together, and he's confessing something about his generation, and probably about himself. And he's using the word depressed to describe it all. What happened was an older man, in, during the course of my answer, finally got frustrated with me or angry with me, whatever it was. He put his hand up and he said, look, you know, I'm tired of all this uh, calling down old people and so on. The truth of the matter is I'm a perfectly good grandfather. I Skype my granddaughter every week. Like that's the measure of anything. And by the way, who was talking about grandparents? We were talking about elders. It's not the same thing. One is not the other. So it's very interesting that he did that translation. And then he defended himself against what? Against what I was saying? Nope. He was defending himself against the despair and depression of a 30-year-old. And he didn't even have the stones to say it. So basically, he's hiding behind his granddaughter and making her existence in the world legitimizing his existence in the world. So that's what happened and shouldn't have. And here's what didn't happen and should have. So this guy confesses his 30-year-old despair, right? And he's lost in it. He's in a world of hurt very clearly. And it's not just him. And what should have happened is amongst those older people that were in the room looking for some kind of absolution or membership or forgiveness or whatever the hell it was, at least one of them should have stood up really quietly and picked up their chair and walked to the front of the room and put the chair down beside that depressed 30-year-old guy and looked at him and said something like the following. Now listen to me, okay? I don't have much to say. I'm no good at this at all. I heard what you said. 
And I don't have the answer as to why your generation is depressed. But I do know this. You're not going to sit up here at the front of the room being depressed by yourself while I'm here. So we're going to sit beside each other and be confounded about this life together. That's what should have happened. Somebody should have got up and not let that guy sit in the front of the room by himself. I'm not saying he would have welcomed the attention or the, or the camaraderie or anything. I'm not saying he would have respected that person, older person, for doing it. Uh, he could have had any number of reactions, right? That's not the point. The point is not to make sure that you comfort this depressed 30-year-old. The point is that you don't leave him alone, okay? Not that you get up in his face, simply that you're, going to, you're not going to argue. You're not making the case. You're not proving that you're capable of anything in particular. But you have the ability to be a companion in a very confounding moment. And you either wait for somebody to ask that of you, or you designate yourself as being that in this moment. And you hope somebody somewhere understands your crazy motivation in the matter. And I still lament that evening for those two things. A thrum moves through my palms, and then up both of my arms and across the shoulders into my chest and quivered there and stayed there and my breathing was burdened for some other life had taken its place there alongside mine and it lasted for maybe an hour or until now <laughs> 